<laughs> well, welcome to the orchard, both here in the building and beyond. Today is an anniversary, a very strange anniversary. A year ago today was our last Sunday here in the building without COVID. I stood up here on stage without a mask. You guys sat out there without masks, shoulder to shoulder with strangers. Yeah. Just singing and breathing and hugging and shaking hands. And, and then a year, uh, and, ne- and then next week is another anniversary of when we started doing church. Uh, we all did, actually did life from our houses, right? Um, but ha- let me ask you a question. Have you ever acted completely inappropriate in the middle of a sacred or religious moment? Any of you ever had that amazing experience where you're just like, oh no, I'm way out of bounds here. Yeah, I wish we had time to go through and get some stories because I know, there, knowing some of you, there's some great stories of how you just had a huge spiritual faux pas. I've told you before when I was a Bible college freshman, how my first week of Bible college, I ended up in the newspaper because I wore a hat to chapel. And I grew up in the mountains of Redstone where a hat was just part of the uniform when you went to church. I had no idea. I had no idea that I was offending so many people. And then there was the time I went to my first Catholic Mass with a friend. I said, if you come to my church this week, I'll go to your church next week. And so there I am at Catholic Mass. And at the end, they say, um, come up forward for communion. And you know, I'm a preacher's kid. I've, I've done communion my whole life. And so I go up there and I get in line. And it's kind of fun. It's, it was totally different. It was single file and just kind of looking around like, oh, we're doing this. And when we get to the front... And there it is, me and this gentleman. And at that point, you know, listen, where I, go, where I grew up in church, you go up there and you grab your cracker and you grab your juice and you go back. No big deal. And so I get up there and there he is and he has a golden bowl and I reach in to get it and, and both of us were shocked that I did that. <laughs> the look in his eyes that I was going to reach into the bowl. I had no idea. I, I had no clue. And, and so there he, he started to whisper to me, like, open your mouth, stick out your tongue. I had no idea what was happening. And he put the cracker there. And I, and, and I, I was never invited back. I had no idea. I didn't mean to do it, but I totally broke the moment. See, I, it was, I was breaching religious etiquette. And, and sometimes we do that. And today we're in our John series where we're looking at the life of Jesus to, to, put, to put Jesus back in his rightful place. And today it It is Jesus who causes the religious elite to gasp and grasp their pearls. Like he's going to do something today that is just shocking. And my prayer at the end of this message is that you will see Jesus in a new light. My prayer by the end of this message is that you would would have a familiar story, which you might have heard before, but that you would see it in a new way. And then finally, by the end, that you would be challenged to make a new commitment. We're in John 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now Passover is a high holy holiday celebrating God rescuing his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. It's supremely important in Jewish tradition. And the city of, city of Jerusalem during this time would have been packed with, with, with pilgrims for the entire week. In, in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, the Jewish people, they were required to go to the temple for three holy days, holidays, and Passover was one of them. And so pilgrims from all over made their way to Jerusalem. And there's some estimates that that during this time that we're looking at, there could be as many as two and a quarter million people in the city of Jerusalem for this week. 
And this is like when the Olympics comes to town. You know, they, they, they get ready for it for a long time. The businesses prepare themselves. Everybody gets ready. Then there's this huge influx of travelers. The entire local economy and everything's changed. And then everybody leaves. And, and this would have been like Passover. And in Passover, you have the, the temple, which would have been the hub, the center of the entire thing. Sacrifices, celebrations, worship, uh, repentance, wailing, praying, all these things happening on this, this, this holiday, this holy day, holy week of Passover. When the, it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He leaves the, the wedding. Him and his disciples go up there. And in the temple courts, courts, verse 15, in the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Jesus arrives and finds it just packed. The temple court's packed with people. And I want to talk about a topic today that you've always wanted to talk about in church. Like if you're like, if they could ever just bring up one thing in church and really dig in, it's taxes. Amen? Amen. Let's talk about taxes. You see, there was a half shekel tax that had to be paid by these pilgrims. And one of the times they would pay it was during Passover. It was for the care and the maintenance of the temple. It's important to know that there were all forms of, of currency, but not all of them were accepted at the temple. There were foreign metals. There were secular currencies that could not be used to pay this temple tax. Now you could go rent a, a room or a house that week. You could buy your food with those currencies, but, but there were only two forms of payment that were considered clean for temple tax. The Galilean shekel and the sanctuary shekel. So you had people coming from all over, all many different regions and cultures and currencies, and they came and they had to have, they had to somehow get a Galilean or a sanctuary shekel. And so what is it these pilgrims have a very practical need for? A money changer. And there's nothing wrong with being a money changer. They provided a necessary service both then and now. But that's assuming that they're honest, assuming they're fair. You see, money changers here in Jerusalem at the temple, they were needed year-round for anyone who would want to come to the temple. But during the feast time, and especially during Passover, they would gouge the throngs of people and they would raise these costs exponentially high, extorting far more than a half shekel for the temple tax. And so you have your foreign currency and you come with that, that you need to exchange. It was worth much less than it would have been worth the week prior. So while money changers were necessary in this system, it wasn't necessary that they would be inside the temple wall. And it wasn't, you compound that with the fact of their dishonest practices. And you can see that there's something afoot that was unsightly. That didn't, didn't seem to fit with what God was doing at Passover. Now a pilgrim didn't just need the shekel for the temple tax. They needed a sacrifice. They would need to present a lamb or an ox or a dove for this, and, and it was one of the central reasons for coming to Passover was to, was to come and present your sacrifice and worship God. And the Bible's clear. The sacrificial animal in the Old Testament says it, it must be without blemish. It, it must be without defect. And therefore, it had to pass an inspection by someone at the temple. These inspections were necessary. And during this time, they were available for a fee. Oftentimes, 
When a pilgrim got to Jerusalem, they would find that their little lamb that they had brought with them, well, it didn't pass the temple inspection. And so that lamb that you brought from home or that you bought from a shepherd outside of Jerusalem, it was now worthless. And guess what you'd have to do? You'd have to go buy one of the animals that they had for sale there inside the temple at their costs, at their prices, which shockingly during the festivals were another markup. And there were some accounts that clean animals there in the temple were four to six times more than they would, would be at any other time. So as you can see, the priesthood and the sellers of this in the temple system were having considerable financial gain. The temple, I mean, this is the social, this is the spiritual, the financial center of Jerusalem. It's like, in, in Passover, this is Super Bowl weekend. Bustling and, and hustling and people hawking merchandise and, and costs are going through the roof. And it, it, it says that a lot of people got sick of going to Passover because they know when you go, you don't just get to have that worship experience. You're gonna spend a lot of money. It's kind of like when you go to Disney, right? I mean, you know, you just turn your wallet upside down and shake it out for Mickey. Like, you, you know that you're gonna spend a lot of money, but you're doing it for this experience. You get, you, we get it. And that's what they did. See, Passover was a special holy week that God had set apart for his people to come and engage in. And they did. They came by the millions. But we find this temple system and the religious elites had used this holiday, this holy day, to really make a killing off the good intentions of these pilgrims. The money changers, the sacrificial animal hawkers, set up shop inside the temple grounds where Jesus shows up and sees them. God had given clear instruction in the Bible how his temple was to be built and how it was to operate. Certain people could go in certain places. We'll have a picture up here and you'll see, you'll notice that there's a wall around the outside of what it would have looked like. People of all ages and genders and nationalities who wanted to worship God could, could enter in and go to those big courts you see there on the left and the right. And these, this courtyard is called the outer courts or the court of the Gentiles. A Gentile is a name for someone who is a, who's non-Hebrew. Now farther inside that section, that, those big courts, were inner courtyards that were smaller for Hebrew men and, and Hebrew women, separate courts. And then you go into another layer to a smaller courtyard where there's, it's, it was just for the priesthood. And then you get to that building complex, the tall one. That's the temple itself. And there you have the holy place. And only a few priests could go in there. And inside the holy place is the holy of holies, the heart of the temple, where God's presence would reside. And only one person, one time a year, could go in that place. So you see that each layer gets smaller and smaller and much more exclusive. And the vast majority of people who would show up on, for their pilgrimage would never, ever see the inside of the temple, let alone even the priest's courtyard. And if you were a non-Hebrew, if you were a Gentile and you made your journey to Jerusalem to worship God there at the temple, where would you worship? You would worship there in those outer courts. The only place that a believing Gentile could worship. They couldn't go in any other layer of the temple complex. And so imagine you're a Gentile, you made this trip, you want to come and worship God. You spent a great amount of money just to travel to Jerusalem. You took time off work. 
You get there and you exchange your money at a great loss. You get there and you, you purchase your sacrificial animal at a great cost. And now you're there to present your worship. You're at the temple. It's your time. It's your moment with God. But what's going on around you in this account? You see, your place where you're about to worship has been filled with, with throngs of animals and booths of money changers and, and the salesmen yelling and hawking their, their wares. Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the, uh, the sounds? Just the chaos that you would have been a part of your worship service? That would be your worship experience. And this is what Jesus arrives at. In, in verse 15, we read this. So Jesus then made a whip out of cords. We named this sermon, Watch Me Whip, for this very sentence. He makes a whip out of cords, and he drove them all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. He makes a whip. He drives out these, these animals. He scatters the coins. He turns over the tables. Pandemonium ensues. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this moment? I mean, for a second, when you read the words of the Bible, when you read John, when you go back and read your Bible, put yourself in it, smell it, hear it, see it. Can you imagine the pandemonium of all the chaos of the animals before Jesus? Then he gets there and starts whipping the animals. They start stampeding one way. People are yelling. Animals are making noise. Then he starts scattering coins. And when you scatter coins, what do people who like coins begin to do? Yell, and they begin to scramble. And he's turning over tables, and, and people selling that. That's their stuff. People are, this this is going to be pandemonium. This is chaos. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the scene that Jesus just set off? I wonder what his disciples were thinking. They just watched their master go from zero to a hundred real quick, you know? Like we're here to worship and oh no, there he's going. Verse 16, Jesus yells, to those who sold the doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, you may be wondering, of course, because whenever you read the text, ask as many questions as you can about it. Why, is he, why does he yell at the dove sellers? They're like, well, they're, we're, they're, we're just selling birds. Like he yells at them. He drives out the herd animals. He turns over the tables, but then he turns some special attention to these people selling doves. And interestingly, three gospels all mention this little detail of him turning and yelling at the dove salesman. What's the focus here? Well, because deep in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 5-7, God gives instruction to his people who will come to the temple and who will make their sacrifice. The lamb is the preferred animal, but a lamb takes a lot of money or a lot of care to raise. It has to be without blemish. You didn't have to purchase it. So God makes a special provision for the sacrifice for those who are poor. Listen to Leviticus 5-7. Anyone who cannot afford the lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Jesus drives them all out, but seems to spend a little extra attention on those who were extorting the poor and the needy who wanted to come to the temple and worship. Jesus saw that they were gouging the poor. He had a special word for them. You see, God didn't make a way for humanity to come to him just to have people begin to put roadblocks. But that's what's happening here. It's precisely what we, have, we see happening. God has given a very detailed account about the temple, how the worship would happen, what it would be like. 
And the priests and the money changers and the others had placed themselves between God and the people and required them to pay prices to get to God. Oh, sure. Hey, everybody come to town. Let's all come worship. But it's going to cost you. Verse 17. Jesus' Jesus's disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. And the word consumed here is a powerful one, a deep hunger, a burning hunger. Jesus sees the mockery they've made of, his, of the, the establishment of the temple, and he, he's consumed by zeal to cleanse and, and to purify his father's house. Now, I don't know if you can imagine how this went over with certain people. You're there, you're, you're changing money and selling things and your table's turned over, your money's gone or, or you're one of the priests. Can you imagine how this, this went over with those who were making money uh, off the Passover weekend? In fact, they ask him a question. It's interesting. They ask him a question, but it's not what I would have, if I put myself in the story, it's not what I would have expected them to say or ask. They say in verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority? to do all this. Like, what, what sign? They didn't yell, stop, you can't do this. They didn't say, arrest him. They didn't say, hey, this is legal. They pretty much asked, who do you, who do you think you are? Like, what authority do you, who do you think you are? Can you show us a sign to prove your authority? Now, John, John the author here, you know, remember, the first half of John is called the book of signs. And he goes through the, the signs of the Messiah because when the Messiah comes in and reveals himself, there will be signs to, to, to show that this is the Messiah. But they demand one. They ask the question John's answering. Can you give us a sign to show us the authority you have to do this? Jesus gives them no sign here. No sign. And he gives them an answer that must have puzzled them and we know it enraged them. Ironically, here's the irony of it all. They're asking, who do you think you are? He's in the temple. He's in the outer courts. And they go, who do you think you are? And, and they don't know they're asking this of the one who's been in the Holy of Holies. What authority do you have to be here? Not knowing they're asking this of the author of life. They want to know by whose power this, he would dare do this. This is humanity asking the word divinity for a sign of his authority in the building that he gave the instructions to build and then his presence was in there. In the Old Testament, there are accounts when, when the temple was built, the, the, the presence of God would descend so thick on the place, the priests couldn't enter and those inside had to flee. And here we have Jesus, fully God. His presence has now entered the temple in human form and he's so consumed by his zeal that, that some are forced to flee. And they ask, who do you think, what authority, who are you? Give us a sign. And Jesus answers in verse 19, destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. Talk about a wild answer. Give us a sign that you have the authority to do this to this temple. A sign, authority? How about this? I'll rebuild this place in three days. How's that for authority? This must have left people slack-jawed. And there's many theologians who believe that it was at this, at this very moment when the priest decided that Jesus had to be killed. 
that, that, that if that blasphemy on the temple and his authority and all these things, like that was when they said, this, this has to end. He's interfering with the power that they have. He's now interfering with the, the wealth that they have. And he's going to go on and increasingly gain influence over the control they have. But here in this moment, with the claim that he could miraculously rebuild the central place of Hebrew worship, the priesthood was raging. And of course, when Jesus said, I'll rebuild this temple, he was hinting at things much more important than a building of brick and mortar. Verse 20 and they replied to Jesus, it's, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? And then John gives us an aside, verse 21. But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples, they thought back and they recalled the thing that he said. And then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. This, this, this gives us some huge clues. You see, the book of John was written after Jesus had died and resurrected. So, so John is writing here knowing the ending. John's writing this in, high, in hindsight. It even says we, we thought back and we believe, we, we, we thought back to this, that Jesus, his, his body is the temple and it's going to resurrect. But I wonder, I just again put yourself as a disciple there in that moment. What did they, without hindsight, in real time, what did they think of when they heard their Messiah say, I could rebuild this place in three days? They, they don't know Jesus as a stonemason, a contractor. Like, like, what's he talking about? The audacity of Jesus to go into the temple at Passover and turn tables, scatter coins. The disciples were probably as shocked and slack-jawed as everyone else. No one does this. No one goes in and does this. And honestly, that's, that's what John tells us about this section. That's all John tells us about this cleansing of the temple. What's Jesus doing here? What does it mean for us? One thing we learned, we learned last week. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to continue to listen because John is building on itself. Last week we learned, remember Jesus turned water into wine. And in that turning water into wine, he's revealing how the old way is, go is, move is going and a new way is coming. Remember, Jesus turned water to wine. He used religious ceremonial washing jars for religious ritual. And in the place of that water, he turned it to, to wine, the symbol for his blood. That blood would replace, once and for all, the washing of ceremonial water. And John continues this theme of showing that Jesus is bringing a new way and a new work. And this is in one of those places. That here in the temple, on Passover, a spotless lamb would be taken and sacrificed for sin. That's what, that's what would happen. People would spend time, they would spend money, they would pilgrim to travel and purchase said lamb for their sacrifice. And then Jesus enters the temple, and what does he do? He drives all the sacrificial animals out. Yes, they're being inappropriately sold, and yes, they're extorting the people, but also the animals, like the ceremonial jars from last week, will soon be irrelevant. Jesus drives out all the animals needed for sacrifice leaving only one sacrifice present. That's the snapshot John gives us. 
That's the foreshadowing. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he's coming to bring a new covenant. A covenant is a chosen relationship or a partnership between two parties who, who work together, binding with promises toward a common goal. And the Old Testament is filled with covenants. The Bible is a covenant. The Old Testament has covenants between God and his people with Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Many covenants. And listen, I'm going to read just a short section from Deuteronomy 28. And what I want you to read, what I want you to hear of in this, I want you to just pick up on the covenant language, okay? As I read Deuteronomy 28 from the Old Testament, listen to the covenant language. Here it is. Moses writing, If you fully obey the Lord your God, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high over all nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then that that, that chapter goes on to describe the blessings and what happens if they don't follow the covenant. Did you notice the covenant language? Two parties, if you do this, I will do that. But Jesus is coming with a new covenant. A covenant, honestly, that if we could catch the full weight of it, we should fall on our knees in gratitude, fall down in, in thankfulness of what he is doing. Luke twenty two twenty, the last supper, Jesus holds the cup and says, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus drove the animals out because their sacrifice would no longer be needed. Because soon his life would be the sacrifice. You see, no longer do I need to pilgrim to Jerusalem because Jesus pilgrimed from heaven to earth. I don't need to go spend money to get access to the temple because Jesus spent his blood to give me access to the Holy of Holies. I don't need to bring or buy a spotless sacrificial animal to put me in right standing with God. I am in right standing with God because Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for my sins, died and rose again. That is the new covenant, that Jesus is the mediator, that he has done the work for us that we could not do for ourselves. In Hebrews 9, 15, it talks about this. Jesus is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and his people so that all who are called can come and receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins they committed under the first covenant. Jesus, the mediator, died to set us free. He has a new covenant. It's by grace we have been saved, not by any works or good deeds. It's by his works, not ours. Praise Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, that there is a new covenant. John 2, we see Jesus clearing the temple. But in more ways than we ever might have seen before. Last week he replaced water with wine as foreshadowing. This week he replaced temple lambs with himself as foreshadowing. And listen, here's the best part. We are just in chapter two. The elders and I have been praying that through this series, that we would elevate Jesus back through all the pandemic and politics and all the stuff we've been through, elevating Jesus back up to see him each week in greater glory. We say at the orchard, we keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's Jesus above all things. 
And that our hope is that, that you would see Jesus' glory, that you would see the great power, the great peace that he offers. And listen, because of all he's done for you, that we would sit here, we would learn each week the great purpose he's actually calling us to. That we're not called to attend church. We're called to engage in a mission, in a purpose, to partner with God. And I want to close this with some personal application. I want us to be challenged this morning. Track with me for a second. The temple was the holy place that God's spirit, would, his presence, would come down and indwell, right? It would dwell. And God took great care to let his people know how it should be built and how they should treat it. And in fact, in the Old Testament, there were people who mistreated it, and guess what? They died. It meant it was important how they treated the temple. Jesus came and he referred to himself as the temple. When Jesus dies, Inside the temple, the Holy of Holies curtain is ripped. The presence of God has left the building. In Acts, we learn, the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, descends from heaven onto his people and fills them. So catch this. This is what is I'm getting. The presence of God went from a temple building to the body of Jesus, which he called the temple, and finally into the body of the believer. Here it is. God's presence changed addresses from a temple building to the temple body of Jesus and then to the temple body of the believer. Do you follow? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? If you come to faith in Jesus, you are the temple. You are that sacred place. You have that, that place where God's spirit, his presence dwells. And the application is this. It's very simple. What does Jesus want to cleanse and clear from your temple? You know, here in John, it was greed that Jesus cleared out. Is there greed in your heart that you need to deal with this morning? 1 Corinthians, in that section, it talked about lust needing to be cleared out of the temple. Is there lust in your heart you need to reckon with today? Today, as we look at Jesus cleansing and renewing the temple of Jerusalem, may we pause on the other side of the cross and resurrection and ask the question, what does he want to cleanse and renew in this temple? Because he wants to renew. He wants to dwell in power. He wants to cleanse. What would you like, what would, what would God want to do and here, I just want to tell you something. This is fact. There is no condemnation here. Condemnation drives you away from God. But conviction calls you to God. And God doesn't work with condemnation. He's calling you with conviction. Jesus loves you right now for who you are. But he also loves you too much to let you stay the same. He wants to cleanse his dwelling. He wants to renew his dwelling, his temple, you. But here's the deal. He's not going to use a whip. He's going to use a whisper. And my prayer is he's going to whisper to you this morning on exactly what it is he wants to clear out of the temple of your heart. He speaks in kindness. You're his daughter. He's your beloved. He loves you. You're his son. He loves you. He doesn't speak in condemning words. He whispers in love 
He doesn't use a whip. He's going to use a whisper. He's not going to go into your heart and turn over, the, turn over the tables, but he is going to ask you to turn over some private sins to him. The glory of Jesus is that he offers forgiveness. Because of the new covenant, because of the sacrifice, he forgives all sins. And if there's ever anything in your mind that says, oh, he doesn't know what I've done. Do you ever have that? Like when you're like, oh, this preacher, he, he's a rookie at sin. He doesn't know what I've done. You can't outsin God's grace. You can't outsin his love. And so whatever argument you present, whatever evidence of your past that it's even hard to even think of back there, the new covenant declares you forgiven in Jesus' name when you come to faith in him. The gift of God, the gift of Jesus is complete forgiveness of your past. It's peace in your present. And it's hope for your future, eternally and tomorrow. An orchard, this is good news. This is a new covenant. Whatever it is that, that you flinch at in your past, Jesus wants to sweep that out of the temple and renew it. He's forgiven it. Maybe you need to. So he's asked you to come to him and lay down some of these things that you harbor inside. Admit it, repent of it, ask his forgiveness, and then move on with it. And I would encourage you one more thing. There's something that's very important to me in my relationships is when one of these things I have to move beyond happens, I need to tell somebody. I tell my wife, Amy. I have some close personal friends that I would tell them, my guy friends. Tell someone. But let's do some business with God this morning. And let's take communion together, if you would. Because this is, this is the new covenant. This is the symbol of the new covenant. The body and the blood of Jesus. So go ahead and open the first layer. We have the wafer there. Symbol of Jesus' body. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. That your body was broken. Go ahead and break that. Take and eat. And Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood, the blood of a new covenant built on your sacrifice, built on grace. We now drink and partake the new covenant. As we go into worship, I want to challenge you today. You know, worship, we think of music. Do you know that worship has very little to do with music? The band knows this. The worship has to do with your heart worshiping an object of worship. And God is worthy however we feel this morning. You may be tired. You may feel condemned. You may not, you may not be, quote, feeling it. You may be at home on your couch and it's hard to worship to a TV. Whatever it would be that detracts you from worship, I would say this. We worship not because we how we feel. We worship because he is worthy. And so this morning, perhaps however you feel, you stand up, you say, Spirit, fill me, and you sing. And you don't, you don't care how you sound, it's how your heart engages. So stand with me and let us worship a God who gave us a new covenant. 
Let's worship a God who is worthy despite how we may feel this morning. Let's praise him for the great work he's done. Amen.